in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak. Knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and bring us with you into His presence. For it is all for your sake. So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, this entire theme of weakness is not, is not a concept that we, that we enjoy investigating. It's not something that we nat- we're naturally inclined to study. And yet it seems so important, so pivotal to this book and pivotal to the Christian life that we want to ask you this morning to help us to understand it a bit better, to help us to understand what this means and how this applies to the life of Paul and therefore how it applies to our lives as well. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen title of this morning's message is The Clay Pot Conspiracy. The Clay Pot Conspiracy. In 1974, there was a, a Bedouin shepherd on a hill near the Dead Sea who was momentarily distracted by something. And as a result of that distraction, one of his lambs walked away. And upon realizing that this lamb was gone, he immediately left the rest of the flock and he began to search for the animal, a quest that delivered him to the limestone cliffs that were on the northwest face of the Dead Sea. And it was there that kind of tucked into the crevice of the rocky hillside that was there that he found something completely unexpected. He found a very dark cave. Now, since the dawn of time, dark caves have incited both trepidation and curiosity in young boys, and it did in him as well. So he did what teenage boys have been doing for centuries when they stood at the entrance of a dark cave. He picked up a stone and he hurled it into the dark cave. And the last thing in the world that he expected to hear was the breaking of a clay jar. And so slowly, because he was curious, he kind of crawled through the opening of the cave where the young shepherd found this row of old clay jars. And popping the lids off of them, he discovered these ancient scrolls. Some of them wrapped in linen and just darkened with age, having been there for years. And so he began to pull them out, and little did he know that at that moment that he would be remembered in history as having discovered one of the greatest archaeological finds in the 20th century. He was the boy that found the Dead Sea Scrolls. If you're not familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were a veritable treasure trove of Hebrew and Aramaic scrolls. There was about 180 
about 850 of them all together, and they contained not only a number of ancient writings, but a number of Old Testament manuscripts that were older than the oldest one that anybody had had at present. It was a value beyond comprehension. And yet it was stored in these common clay pots, a treasure in jars of clay. Now that story forms what I think is a great metaphor for the point that Paul is trying to deliver to the Corinthians, and to us, by the way, through this section of Scripture. Now I want to just take a second and remind us of the context. Let's all remember the context of what's going on here in 2 Corinthians. Paul has this opposition party in the Corinthian church. And their mission is to win the Corinthians back to the law, to try to rescue the Corinthians from what they perceive to be a cult built around Jesus Christ. And their strategy for achieving that end was to attack and discredit the Apostle Paul. In other words, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And by the way, that wasn't a hard thing because Paul was something of an easy target for striking. Tradition has it that Paul was a very unattractive man. Some suggest that he had a, a deformity in his back that created what you might call a hunchback, the Apostle Paul. It was also said that he was so repulsive because he had an eye condition that far, further kind of marred his appearance, which is why he mentions his bodily ailment. In Galatians chapter 4, have you ever said, I was with you because of a bodily ailment, and you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. And so most commentators speculate that his bodily ailment had something to do with his eyes, and it was, a, it was something about it that made his appearance, affected his appearance. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the detractor said that not only is he unimpressive in his form, but his speech is entirely unskilled. He was not a good orator at all. In fact, what he said, they said, was utterly irrelevant. He makes no sense to us. And so they, 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 the uh, opponents of Paul would concede that he was bright, that would concede that he had quite an intellectual capacity, but he didn't speak publicly very well. They felt he was inept, insufficient, contemptible, inferior. When Paul walked into the room, he was hardly an imposing figure. He was just too plain, too base, too weak. Now here's the problem. The problem is that Paul knew some of that was true. That he did possess some of the very weaknesses that are now being used against them. And so the question that the text raises is, how should Paul respond? And the way that bridges over into, the, into our lives is that it raises the question, how should we respond? You know what I'm talking about? Have you ever ever thought that, like perhaps at your job, that if my boss really knew how much I don't know, I'd be sacked by this afternoon. I'd be out of here in a minute. Or can people really tell that my, my memory isn't what it used to be? 
or my energy isn't what it used to be, or I'm tired in a way that I never used to be. Can people really tell that? And as a result, it produces this kind of deep self-doubt where our weaknesses at times can just seem overwhelming to us, and we just don't know what to do because they fill our horizon. Well, see, that's some of what Paul was dealing with in 2 Corinthians. And here's his defense. Here's how he begins to respond in chapter 4. To the charge that he is utterly insufficient, he says, Your Honor, I am guilty. To the charge that he's an unskilled orator, he says, Your Honor, I am guilty of that as well. To the charge that he is unimpressive and mean and base and weak, he says also, Your Honor, I am am guilty. And then he extends that out. He he brings this as his argument. This is the logic of his defense. He says, you think, Corinthians, you think, my critics, you think those weaknesses disqualify me, but what you don't know is they are actually my credentials. They're actually my credentials because they have become for me the ground of of God's power in my life. And when my weakness meets God's power, God's glory abounds. It is the clay pot conspiracy. Now, I know that word conspiracy oftentimes has kind of dark overtones to it. But when I use it this morning, I'm talking about God's hidden plan to sabotage the enemy and to display his power in entirely counterintuitive ways. It's God's unexpected plan to confound the wise, like the Corinthian intruders. It's God's secret design to head fake the enemy, to to humble the proud, to abolish boasting, to impart his power into weak people, to magnify his name in ways no one ever expected. It's the clay pot conspiracy. And it's as as simple as this. It's my weakness plus God's power equals God's glory. My weakness plus God's power equals God's glory. Now we have to understand that. Because that's revolutionary for our lives. And so we have to break that apart and really get where Paul is going and why he's going there. And so what I want to do together is I want to look at God's conspiracy plan, this three-step plan that he seems to unfold for Paul. So I'm going to give you three steps, and you can write them down if you want to, but listen carefully, because step one is this. Step one of God's plan is store treasure in clay. Store treasure in clay. Look at verse 7 again. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Now, let's, as responsible expositors, let's interact with the text a little bit. Let's just ask the text a couple of simple questions, like, for instance, what is the treasure? Well, of course, Rome, or, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7 has to be read in light of 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 6. So the treasure is, according to the prior passage, Paul's 
gospel ministry. The ministry of, for one, the mercy of God. Paul says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God. And then he wraps up in verse 6, telling us about the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's talking about his ministry to carry the gospel to people that don't yet know Jesus. And he's talking specifically about the incomparable worth and the priceless truth of the Savior who left the glory of heaven and died for our sins and rose upon the third day. The knowledge of of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ is a treasure beyond description. It is the pearl of great price. It is the glorious good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, we have this treasure. But then he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. So what Paul seems to do here is he seems to, 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 to contrast this treasure that we have with the receptacle which the treasure is placed in. And he calls them jars of clay. Clay jars. See, clay jars were were common pots in every home in, that, 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 that was a building back then, in every home, in every family. Think of just like earthenware that was used for cooking and for eating and for containers and, I mean, everything. As a bedpan, it was used for everything. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says, quote, Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable use. In other words, the clay was for dishonorable use. The dishonorable things that people do, that's what the clay pots were for. I'll leave you to speculate more on that. Basically, he's talking about baked Dirt. Think that which is disposable. Think about those disposable red cups the fraternities use. Think about your house after a night of Chinese where there's Chinese food containers that are just littered all around the kitchen after the takeout. In other words, we're talking about something that was cheap, replaceable, inferior, weak, fragile, powerless, ignoble. In fact, the only value they had was the value and the service they provided. Nothing else. The only value they had was the value of the service they provided. And so God says, that's Paul. And that's us as well. Paul says, or or God says, you're the vault that stores my treasure. See, are you beginning to see kind of God's subterfuge in this? Because think about the way that, think about what we do with the things that we value. We have money, we deposit money in the bank. You have a nice car, you want to put your car in the garage. You have jewels, you want to store jewels in a safe. Because that's how we think about things that we, we value. You know, when I, when I was uh, eight years old, I lived across the street from a parking lot, and... Uh, and my brother one day was over in the parking lot, and he called me to come over to the parking lot. And he says, come here, I, w- I want to show you something. And so I walked across the street, and 
he opened his hand, and in his hand was this gold nugget. At least it looked to me like a gold nugget. I didn't see the gold spray paint can standing or, yeah, standing up right by his foot, but it looked to me like a gold nu- nugget. And I was, I was utterly captivated by what I was looking at. I said, whoa, where did you get that? And he said, right here, man, right here in the parking lot. And I said, you've got to be kidding me. Are there more? He said, the whole lot is filled with it. And I said, aren't people going to come from all around and steal them? He said, I bought the lot. You know, this is my older brother, five years older than me. He was like a hero to me. So I believed everything that he said. He said, you know what, dude? I'm going to give you that one. I said, really? I have my own gold nugget? And so I had it in my hand, and I realized this is something that is infinitely precious to me. And so I ran upstairs, and I did the only thing I knew how to do. The only way I could protect this treasure is I got an old shoebox And I put the gold nugget, I laid down some toilet paper, and I put the gold nugget on the toilet paper, and then I wrapped it up with tape as as tightly as possible because kids know, all kids know, that tape is invincible to burglars. (laughs) And then I was very clever because I stored it in the bottom drawer thinking that nobody would ever think to go after my treasure in a bottom drawer because... To me, it was valuable. It was something I wanted to lock up. I wanted to store it in the safest place I could find. I wanted to keep it close to me. God says, step one of my conspiracy, you want to know what it is? I'm storing my treasure in a bedpan. I'm storing my treasure in something clay, like the scrolls in the jar that the Bedouin shepherd found. We say, Lord, why are you doing it that way? He answers us in verse 7, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Do you see it? It's the clay pot conspiracy. See, the Corinthian troublers can't see it because they can only look on the outside of Paul. They look on the outside, they say, he's unimpressive. Have you heard him speak? He can't even put words together in a way that seemed coherent. Because they assume that treasure is stored in vaults, that treasure is stored in strong places. They're sold on a whole kind of different equation, one that says it's my strength plus God's power that equals God's glory. But what they don't know is that equation just magnifies their strength, not God's glory. And so, no, 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 God says, wait a minute, no, you don't understand. I want to show the world the surpassing power belongs to me. That's what I want to show the world. So this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to store my treasure in that which is weak. I'm going to store my treasure in that which is humble. Because your weakness plus my power equals my glory. It's step one of the conspiracy. Store treasure in clay. Step two. God says, step two of my conspiracy is make death produce life. Make death produce life. So Paul goes on in the uh, logic of his thinking to say, allow me now to illustrate the next step with just a little slice from my own life, from my own experience. And then he provides a series of four different 
contrast. Contrasts that represent a growing weakness in him that results then in the power of God. And I want you to know we're coming now to like the heart of 2 Corinthians. Some of the most potent writing in this book is the writing we're about to read. I brought a quote by one of the commentators, a guy named Kent Hughes, who says, quote, this is one of the grand rhetorical moments in Paul's writing. And so he begins to express himself this way. Verse 8, he says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. It's an interesting wordplay here in the Greek where the word but not that he continues to, to use, but not, actually means like it's far more decisive. It's far more emphatic. It's more like, but by no means. This has happened, but by no means has this happened as well. So he says, afflicted, that I am afflicted in every way, but I'm not crushed. Afflicted there just means pressured. It means It means squeezed by life, squeezed by trials and afflictions. A guy named Merrill Tenney translated that squeezed, but by no means squashed. So he says, I'm afflicted. I'm perplexed, he says, but not driven to despair. Now that's pretty clear. That's pretty self-evident. That language is pretty close. Then he goes on to say persecuted, but not forsaken. Now remember, Paul Paul was having enemies attack him, slander him, stone him, beat him to near death with rods, but, he says, I've never felt forsaken. I've had these experiences where it seems like I'm being judged, and yet I've never felt forsaken by God. I've had these experiences where I felt life was supposed to go this way, my ministry was supposed to go this way, by this age of my life I'd be here And yet I was over here, and yet I never felt forsaken. I marvel at that. I do. I marvel at that. Because in thinking about it this past week, I I just thought, you know, so often for me, I go from my flaws to I'm forsaken. My foibles, I'm forsaken. My failures, I'm forsaken. You know, we have this, almost this bridge that we immediately cross when we are not godlike in the way that we're living our life or in the areas we're falling short, we immediately feel forsaken by God because we're so oriented to feeling God. We're so oriented to sight that we walk by sight and not by faith. So, you know, you make a decision about, you know, life. I don't know, the kids or or money, or how you're going to handle some kind of conflict or some tricky situation at work, or whatever it is. And things not only don't go the way you expected, but it just makes them worse. You tank. Well, you immediately feel forsaken by God. Not because God has withdrawn His presence, but it's just this realm of feeling where, where we get overwhelmed with the sense of, of, of our faults and our failures and our frailty and our foibles and and we, we actually forget that the gospel comes in and announces to us that, that, the, that Jesus Christ, the Son, was forsaken by God. And He was forsaken by God so that He would always be there for us. And it was Jesus that hung on the cross saying, My God, 
My God, why have you forsaken me? That in that moment, God had to turn his face away because the weight of the sins of the world were being placed upon the Son and he could not maintain the relationship in the same way, but he had to judge the Son. He had to forsake the Son that you might never be forsaken. That you might never be alone that you might never be put on the outside. So Paul says, I've been persecuted. It's been bad. But I've never been forsaken by God. He says, struck down. Struck down, but by no means destroyed. That word struck down literally means being like whacked with a weapon. I mean, for all we know, he might have been referring to Acts chapter 14 there, where he was stoned in Lystra. They drag him outside of the city. They leave him for dead. Paul gets up. He opens his eyes. He kind of brushes himself off, and he walks away. Listen, here's the point of these contrasts. Everyone, the critics, the Corinthians, everyone knows that Paul's been afflicted and persecuted and perplexed and struck down. Therefore, they assume that he will be crushed and despairing and forsaken and destroyed. Because the equation that they live life out of was my victories plus God's power equal God's glory. It's my victories that God's power gets added to that brings glory to God, that makes God look really good. But Paul's coming right at and he's saying, oh, by no means. By no means is that true because God has a conspiracy Because right there in those dark places, right there in those weakest moments is where I encounter the power of God. It's where God is most glorified in those weakest moments. You know, one of the most sobering moments for a believer is to realize that God intends to break the pot to let the treasure out. That we have this treasure in jars of clay, and yet part of life is God moving in in unexpected ways, moving in and at times in a sense of violence, breaking the pot open. The shepherd boy throws the stone in 1947, opens the treasures of the Dead Sea Scrolls to the world. God throws stones or allows other people to cast stones at us, lets the stones fly, the pots break, the treasure comes out. Unless the pots break, the treasure doesn't come out. Unless the pots break, the treasure remains concealed. We can almost feel defrauded by this. Maybe you feel that way now because you realize, hey, wait a minute, that was not the gospel that I responded to. The gospel I responded to had a lot more to do with blessing and, and peace and victory. And Paul's advertising almost a completely different kind of gospel. He's saying, come to Christ and be afflicted. Come to Christ and be perplexed and struck down and persecuted. No thanks. I'd rather light myself on fire. That seems a little bit more peaceful. And yet, God breaks us to free this treasure that is within us. And so for Paul, he, he takes it all the way to verse 10, where he says, actually, what you have to understand, Corinthians, is that I 
carry death that the life of God may be manifested in me. That there is no life of God in me unless there is death to certain things in my life. Do you see what's beginning to happen to your, I mean, even right now, your your fundamental definition of success, your, your sense of what life was supposed to look like by this age, See, we, we think even the work of God, we think the kingdom of God is supposed to advance by strong people using amazing gifts to create epic fruit. God says, no, not really. Not really. Because, what a rip-off Jim Elliott's phrase, because when I bid men to follow, I invite them to come and die. So when I went, want my message to ring forth to the world, I break the pot. I break the pot. I break the clay. Verse 12, so death will be at work in us, but life in you. It's death producing life. Who would have thought that? Death producing life. Nobody would have imagined that. Death producing life. It's the conspiracy. It's the clay pot conspiracy. Two. Which leads us finally to step three. Step three, which is stir faith without sight. Stir faith without sight. Look at verses 13 and 14. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised Jesus, the Lord Jesus, will also raise us with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. So here, what Paul's doing is he's reaching back. He's reaching back to Psalm 116. And he begins to cite a psalm that David wrote, where David says in the song, Psalm, I believed, and therefore I spoke. This is a a period in David's life where he almost died, where he's being hunted, and God delivers him from affliction. And David is testifying in that psalm that I believed. And because I believed, I spoke out of my belief. And Paul says in like manner, just like David, We also believe, and so we speak. And what do we speak? Well, he says what we speak in verse 14. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. So here's here's just another part of this conspiracy where God says, listen, when I break the pots, I want you to talk. When I break the pots, I want you to talk, but I want you to talk differently. I want you to talk hopefully. Because you believe in your heart that behind all of this is a God who raises the dead. And so there's some interesting things about faith just in these couple of verses that I I think we can glean and we can learn when the clay pot is breaking. We can apply when clay pots are breaking. And uh, one of the things that comes to mind is that faith speaks. That the nature of faith is to give voice to what you believe. I mean, have you ever noticed that the more we break, the more we talk? 
You know, we start breaking, we start talking. We start talking first to ourselves. I love that quote by, by Paul Tripp. He once said, no one, no one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you as much as you talk to yourself. So when the clay pot is breaking, we start talking. But we're first primarily talking to ourselves. You know, we get up in the morning, we get in the shower, and all of a sudden the mind comes alive. We begin going through our day. We're not talking to other people first. We're just talking to ourselves. And we're rehearsing all of the ways that God is sticking it to us. All of the ways that God is absent. All the ways that God is not fulfilling yet another one of his promises. And, and then we also begin to spill that over into our relationships with other people. And so we talk to them. We, we protest, we grumble, we complain, we moan, we lament. Because when we break, we speak. When we break, we speak. But what's happening here is that God is redirecting our words. And he's saying, speak as if God is behind the breaking and speak as if the God who is behind the breaking loves to raise the dead. He's in the business of raising the dead. Remind yourself that he raises the dead. So first, faith speaks. And then secondly, faith remembers. Faith remembers. So one of the things about being, you know, when, when the pot is being broken, we experience unbelief. One of the things that unbelief does is it attacks the past. It attacks the past by kind of dulling the memories from the past of where God really moved on our behalf, beginning with our conversion. It just seems so distant. Beginning with those other times where God saved us or brought us out of something. It just seems so dull. We don't remember it well. Because unbelief assaults what God has done in us and what has God has done for us. It kind of goes after those two targets. So in verse 14, Paul says, remember. First, let's remember David. Let's remember those from the past like David. Those that were in terrible situations where God worked it out for them because they believed in something beyond themselves. But then he says, we also speak Remembering this, remembering God raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. He, he raised Jesus Christ. This is far more than just kind of a Lazarus part two. Well, he raised Lazarus, he raised Jesus. No, no, no. No, Jesus is something much different than Lazarus. Jesus was cursed by God. Cursed by the law. Jesus was judged by God. And yet he raised him from the dead. That, that God's power is so vast that he's capable of even, even reaching down to, to one who had stamped upon him in that moment the worst of humanity, and he raises him from the dead. See, we have to remember that what the resurrection really represents. Because we have people in our lives that are being broken. It's not just us. It's it's people around us that are being broken right now, and we need to remind them that there is a resurrected Savior who stands poised to help them, poised to, to, to reach them right where they are, to bless them, to remind them that there is a God who's behind the breaking. There's a God behind the breaking. 
You know, maybe you have people in your life that are saying, you know, I hate that I live with depression. I've tried each and every day. It doesn't matter. It doesn't need to be associated to anything that I'm thinking about, anything that I've done. It's just there. I wake up. The cloud is there. I, I get into the cloud. It's around my head. And I, and I don't know what to do. See, somebody like that needs to know that there's a perspective Paul would bring to that, that that darkness is not necessarily a flaw. It's a credential. It's a place where they're going to meet God in a unique way that God will work through. Because it's easy in those moments to fall into an equation that says, my self-loathing plus God's power equals God's glory. Like we're supposed to just flog ourselves because we don't feel the way Christians are supposed to feel. So my self-atonement plus God's power equals God's glory. Like what I need to do in order to improve myself or what I need to do to atone from the past is just to beat myself up each and every day, cut myself even so that I can atone for my sins. See, we need to tell people about a Savior that sticks treasure in clay pots. A Savior that himself was raised from the dead and sticks treasure in clay pots and gives power to clay pots and then sends clay pots out into the world with a mission of the gospel to remind people that there is a God behind the clay pot. So faith remembers. And finally, faith anticipates. Again, verse 14, the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. So he fills us with a growing awareness that Jesus was raised and will be raised too. And he reminds us that that each time the pot is broken, that that's not the end. That's not the end of the story. That we're not home yet. That there's a day coming when we're going to be presented before God. And because of Jesus Christ, he will approve of us. And we're going to be presented together with other believers. But today, for now, we're not home yet. You know, most people know the name of Teddy Roosevelt, but, but few people have ever heard of the name of Henry Morrison. Um, but around the turn of the century, Henry Morrison and Teddy Roosevelt shared a boat together because they both sailed home from Africa. Teddy Roosevelt, after being on an adventure in Africa, and Henry Morrison, after being 40 years in the field as a missionary. And when they arrived in the New York Harbor, there were streamers and banners all over the place. There were people screaming and yelling. And in all of that, Henry Morrison was saying, well, certainly, you know, the majority of that is for Teddy Roosevelt. But I know out there, from my church, from the people that I was raised with, from the people that sent me out, there must be somebody there that is going to welcome me home. And he he went down the gangplank and looked around, and there was no one. They were all there for Teddy Roosevelt. And he tells the story of how he struggled, how he felt disillusioned, how he felt dejected, until he heard this small voice whisper into his soul, Henry, you are not home yet. You are not home yet. See, that's what faith does. Faith remembers we are not home yet. So it anticipates a day where we will be going home. Because part of the way that God wants to confound the world, part of the way that God confounds the wise, is He takes these weak vessels, He breaks the clay, and then He gives them faith with no sight that they can glorify Him by trusting Him. 
And then verse 15 is where we wrap up because verse 15 spells out the amazing effects of this whole conspiracy that God has conceived. Let me just read it to you. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So grace extends, more people give thanks, and God is glorified. See, there's a sense where this this conspiracy has a finale. To spread the fame of Jesus throughout the world has a finale. That more and more people will give him glory. I mean, think about it. Who would have ever dreamed that God would be most glorified through weakness rather than strength? Who would have ever thought that the secret of God's conspiracy is my weakness plus his power equals his glory? I would have thought it's my strength plus his power equals his glory. But when you think about it, it's kind of how this whole enterprise was launched to begin with in this kind of clandestine manner that nobody expected. In other words, God didn't storm the earth from heaven. He didn't do the shock and awe thing to get our attention. He didn't marshal angels for an invasion on earth of the kingdom of God. Jesus left the glory that he had with the Father, and he became a servant. And then he was arrested as a criminal. He was beaten like a felon. He was stripped naked and humiliated, ultimately dying the death of a cursed man. His clay pot was broken for our sins. And then God raised him on the third day. This is going to be really cool because we're heading towards chapter 13. And in chapter 13, something that Paul says is, quote, for he was crucified in weakness. We're going to think about that. He was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. So it is the weakness of the cross and through the weakness of the cross that we live. It's through the foolishness of the cross that God's power meets our weakness. It's by breaking the clay pot. Just like the shepherd boy did in the cave by the Red Sea. That, that we, it's by breaking the clay pot that we see the free and free the treasure. So that, again, my weakness plus God's power equals God's glory. It's the clay pot conspiracy. And it is magnificent.